Good morning. What a joy to be with you. Besides heaven itself, there is no other place I would rather be. I long for this time that we can hear your voices, see your faces, hug you. Oh, thank the Lord. The psalmist, Brian, talk about the Word of God. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 25, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your Word. Make me understand the way of your precepts. And I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. It was Martin Luther who said, The Holy Scriptures require a humble reader who shows reverence and fear towards the word of God. And constantly says, teach me, teach me, teach me. The Spirit resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, Lord, we beg your help. Our souls, our spirits cling to the dust. We long to hear your voice. Teach us your ways. Help me to be faithful. Lord, it's a wonderful and very fearful thing to stand here. So help me. But I'm not the only one who has responsibilities here. Everyone here has the responsibility of listening attentively, listening carefully to your word. So both the preacher and the congregation, we all say with one voice, help us, Lord. Help us. We hear so many, so many voices during the week. Lies. Falsehoods, news. We are bombarded with things that easily create fear in our lives despair, depression. And how refreshing it is to come into your house. And receive a heavenly perspective. As Brian was saying, the truth that God reigns. That you are in your throne. Lord, we pray for the churches in Salem especially, Lord. So many churches. Fearing man instead of fearing you, O Lord. Help us. Help us to fear You. We pray Your blessing upon Your flock here in Salem. We ask that the sub-shepherds, the sub-pastors, would fall on their knees. And remember that we will give an account for your flock whom you bought with your precious blood. Lord, how we need your grace. How we need your mercy. We pray for our president. As First Timothy says, we pray for those in authority. We pray that you would save our governor 
We pray to lead her to the cross. Our president. In order that we may live quiet, peaceful lives, Lord. And if it's not your will, strengthen us. Help us. Just like most of the church throughout the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. All right, Philippians chapter 2. First, let's go to chapter 1, verse 27. And please stand. Chapter 1, verse 27, so the context is fresh. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement or comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any fellowship from the Holy Spirit, any affection, compassion, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord in one mind. Do nothing, nothing from selfishness or empty glory, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, brothers, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and given to Him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. Please be seated. One scholar said, The doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, is the most sublime truth of the Christian faith. And it is its supreme treasure. The doctrine of the Trinity. That's the most important doctrine in the Christian faith. The doctrine of God. If you get the doctrine of God wrong, you got everything wrong. And it's the doctrine of the Trinity. That God is one being in three persons. From all eternity. It's this doctrine that separates Christianity from all the other monotheistic religions. All the other religions who believe in just one God, and we can put here uh, the Jewish religion, Judaism, and Islam, they believe in one God, but they have the wrong God because their God is not triune. And that's one, probably the most important doctrine in the Christian faith. And yet, it's one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult doctrine for our limited, fallible minds to grasp. I don't know anyone 
who had the audacity to say, I, I got complete, I understand fully the doctrine of Trinity. We can't. It's beyond our ability as creatures, as finite beings. But here's the, the beauty of this, is that God made us rational beings, and we are supposed to study the Trinity as much as we can. How this God is one and three. One being and three persons. But what's fascinating is when you go through the New Testament, you never see the authors of the New Testament trying to give a theological explanation for the, exi the existence of the Trinity. You never find Paul or Peter or Luke, the author of Hebrews, John, trying to give a, 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 a theological explanation of how the Trinity exists. It's just understood, it's assumed by faith, by revelation of God Himself. But the authors of the New Testament, they always use the Trinity to exhort the church into holy living. So every time you have the mentions of God the Father, Son, and Spirit, it's always one way of comforting, encouraging, exhorting the church. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's getting the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three and yet one, and he's using this doctrine to do what with the church in Philippi. What is the context? There is a struggle with the unity. In order to resolve this struggle with the unity, what do they need? Humility. And what does Paul do? He used the Trinity. That's amazing. He used the doctrine of the Trinity to fight division in the church and promote humility that will produce unity. And people spend a lot of money to get degrees, to come up with some philosophical answers for problems in the home, in society. Do you know what the Bible does? Behold God. Behold your God. Look to your God. And that's what Paul is doing here. We have marital problems. What does Paul do? Hey, let me check with Plato what Plato wrote about marriage and Socrates. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Church is having some financial problems, some stingy people. What does he do? Ten steps to grow in economic status? No. Behold Christ. Though was rich, he made himself poor in order to make many rich. That's how the Bible works. Biblical ethics. Look to Christ. Look to the Trinity. Look to God the Father. Look to the Holy Spirit. Learn from them. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. So may we let God use the deep truths of His character to impact us in the most practical ways. So here we are, talk about important doctrines. Here we are in Philippians chapter 2. And that's for sure one of the most important passages in the New Testament. And I would say in the whole scope of the Bible. That's one of the most Precious, most important text in the whole Bible. So, for example, Gordon Fee, he writes, This remarkable passage is, at once, one of the most exalted, one of the most beloved, one of the most discussed, debated passages. And he says in the Pauline or Pauline corpus, the letters of Paul. Because of sheer grandeur, it has assumed a role both in the church and in private devotional life 
quite apart from its original context as a piece of early Christology. So this passage, what he's saying is, is so beautiful, so majestic, that people often come to this passage and they do what? Remove out of the context. And suddenly you are placing wings in this text and letting this text fly far away from its context. So that's what we have been trying to do. We have been trying to look at this text in its context. And the context is Paul calling the church to unity, a unity grounded in humility, because that's what means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. To walk in a manner that matches the gospel. Is the gospel is the triune God saving His people, uni- unifying all things in Christ. Therefore, for the church to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, they need to be united. And that's what Paul is doing. So we saw, if structuring the text, verses 5 through 11, we have the call to have the mindset of Christ. And then we have the humility of Jesus. His humiliation, culmination on the cross. And now we come to His ascension. The enjoyment of that humility. That's how He can make a U-shape. So from glory all the way down to the cross and now back to His glory manifested. It's not that He removed His glory. God can never remove His glory, but He can clothe His glory so others will not see. And that's all He did. He clothed Himself in the form of a slave. And today we come to the last part in the series. We have spent a long time in these verses. And today the Lord will come to the final portion. Verses 9 through 11, the enjoyment of the mindset of humility. So just to refresh our minds, and maybe you were not here before, verse 5, we have the exhortation for the mindset of humility. Look at verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind in yourselves. This mind, which mind? You've got to go to the verses preceding. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing from vainglory. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your interest, but to the interest of others. So that's the mindset that Paul is calling. So he says, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours or was in Christ Jesus. And now he shows how this same mindset that he's asking the Philippians was and is in Christ Jesus. So verse 5 works as a bridge between the exhortation to have that mindset and now the personification of the mindset, the example of the mindset. So, verse 6 through 8, Paul gives us the beautiful example of the mindset of humility. And he shows Christ in His glory, who, though in the form of God, or who, because existing in the form of God, so all His glory in, in eternity as God Himself, And then he starts going down, 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 down. His humiliation until he reaches where? He humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. How low should we go in our humiliation? How humble should we be? How high should we lift up others above ourselves? Paul gives the answer. Is there a limit? The cross. If that's a limit, that's the cross. And now, starting verse 9. Verse 9 through 11. That's where we come now. And as... The history of Jesus representing His people came to the culmination of the cross. Now it's going to take the U shape and start back up into the heavens. 
So, verses 9 through 11, things, things take a new direction. It's still in the context of humility. Here we have the enjoyment and exaltation of humility. And our God delights in humility. And He delights in rewarding humility. So, you go through the Scriptures. He promises what? To exalt the humble. To give grace to the humble. He loves doing that. And that's what we see right here. So, verses 9 through 11, we have the divine eschatological vindication of humility. Paul is showing the beautiful fruit of humility. In these verses, we behold the supreme illustration of Jesus' own words. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Do you remember when Jesus said that? You humble yourself, and you will be exalted. And now here, he's showing through his own life this pattern in God's economy. Because he descended to the lowest depth, God exalted him to the highest place. So, you notice if you study this passage that there is... uh, transition here. So, especially starting in verse 9, there is a, a, a theological and a grammatical shift that takes place here. And in verses 6 through 8, who is performing the actions of the verbs? Look in your Bibles, please. Verses 6 through 8. Who is performing the actions of the verbs? He emptied himself Right? He humbled himself. And now there is a shift. And who is performing the actions? God the Father. So that's very important. Very important. Up to this point, it's Christ who decides and who acts, relinquishing his claims, emptying himself, becoming human, serving, obeying, dying. Now, it's God the Father who acts in the exaltation of Christ. So, look at verse 9. And look at how it begins, verse 9. Therefore, if you have a therefore, therefore, you must look at the context. It's always telling us, hey, don't use this verb out of context. Every time you see a therefore, there is something before. And that's key. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that's above every name. So, if you have the NEASB or the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it says, for this reason. The NAT Bible says, as a result. And that's all good translations. The way that Paul structured the the Greek sentence here, we could translate, that's why, uh, is the reason. There is a cause and effect here. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So, the father responds to the son's humiliation, humility, with two actions. He gives him the place that's above every name. He places him in the highest place, and then he gives a name that's above every name. So you can see in verse 9. Therefore God has highly, look at verse 9, has highly exalted. Then he says, exalted him to the highest place. The verb means to raise someone to the loftiest height. It could translate as super exaltation. That's a very good way of translating here. The super exaltation. The Father super exalted Jesus. And as I said before, it's it's not that Jesus is gaining glory. God can never receive more glory in the sense of adding to His being. He's, He's perfect in glory, in majesty. So, Jesus is not receiving more glory as God. So, that's very important, okay? God, He has His glory that never changes. 
It's not like we can remove some glory from God or God can remove His glory from Himself. Oh, let me remove my majesty. No. When the Bible talks about the glory of God uh, expanding through the earth or give glory to God, that means to ascribe glory. means to declare His glory. To proclaim His glory. That's what the Bible says. And that's what's taking place here. There's a passage in John 17. If you're writing down, John 17, 5. It's fascinating and will help you understand what's taking place here. Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Meaning, the splendor of His glory, that glory revealed that was in heaven and angels bow and worship. And He clothed that glory with garments of humanity. And now He's ascending and now that glory is actually revealed in His humanity for the first time. Jesus never had flesh before. That's the first time He ascends into heaven with a human body. And now as if we can change the angle. He always had that glory. But now, for the first time, we can see that glory from another angle. As a humble king. The one clothed with humanity. Dressed with flesh and bones. Isn't that amazing? God. One of the persons of the Godhead now stands in heaven with flesh and bones. Why? To save miserable people like you and me. That's amazing. What he's doing, he's displaying now his victory through a new angle never seen before. The mystery of the kingdom of God has been revealed and manifested. It's the kingdom that's exalted through humility and suffering. So he's super exalted. And look at verse 9. It says, And he received the name, and he gave him the name that's above every name. And scholars debate, is that the name Jesus? Is that the name Lord? Jesus is His name from His birth. He shall be called Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1. I believe that the name here is more a title. When you remember in ancient times, in ancient times the name represented what? We use names and labels. We have then. Back in ancient times, the, the name represented more, represented the attributes, the character of a person. Remember the, the, the time that Moses and the Lord in the burning bush, and the Lord reveals His name, Yahweh. Why? It's His faithful presence with His people. I will be with you. I am who I am. I'll be what I will be. I will take care of you. That's His character. And we can spend a lot of time trying to understand what is the name, what is the, the position, but I think when you understand, especially what took place in ancient times during the time of war, you can understand very well what's taking place here. The imagery of battle and war is just overflowing from this text. There was the ancient custom of giving a new name to a general, a commanding officer, once he conquered an epic battle. So if you study ancient documents, you can go to study the Roman documents, and you will see that how some people, after they conquer massive battles, important battles, they would receive a name. And that name wasn't a personal name. It's not like adding Jesse. But it was a title. 
So, for example, Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus, he was a Roman general, and he's one of the greatest military commanders and strategists of all time. His main achievements were during the Second Punic War, and he's best known for defeating Hannibal at the final battle of Zama in Africa. Because he conquered a massive battle in Africa, what was the title that he received? Africanus. That's the name he received. It's a title to remind of his victory. Another example. Nero Claudius Drusus Germanicus. Germanicus. Also known as Drusus the Elder. And he led a successful campaign into Germania. Germania. And then he becomes Germanicus. Because that's the title he receives from victory in the area. So he receives a name now. A, a title of honor. Pompey received the name Great after his victory. So it's a public recognition. And that's what's happening here. That's very important for us to understand. This whole imagery here that Paul is placing before us is of military victory. And Christ, who looked like He was defeated on the cross, actually won the battle on the cross. That's exactly what Paul says in Colossians. He triumphed through the cross. You see the, the expression, every knee should bow. It's an expression of total surrender in the context of military victory. Once you conquer someone, they would bow before you as slaves. If you read the Roman history, especially the civil wars, you will hear about Rome's enemies being brought to their knees. And every knee should bow. Every tongue confess. There are Roman coins. A lot of times you get Roman coins and you see the defeated nation. There is a, a picture of the defeated one on their knees and they're doing like this. As if professing the lordship of the Romans who conquered them. The same with Greeks too. And that's what Paul is showing here. It's a victory through cross. Look at verse 10. He says... And, and, and now it makes even more sense. Look at the, what is the meaning of the name and the, the super exaltation of Jesus. So that. What does so that imply? Thank you, my grammarians here. Yes. It's connected. So that. Look at the reason here. The purpose of giving His name, exalting Him. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess. Universal lordship. Universal submission. Universal worship. There's a kingdom purpose. A lot of times we overlook that. But there is a kingdom purpose in giving Him the name, placing Him above all other thrones. It's for kingdom. Look at that. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue confess. Knees bowing, tongues confessing. It's a picture of kingdom victory. The kingdom of God expands through humiliation, pain, and death. Hmm. Through His suffering, die on a cross, humbling Himself... He actually conquered. And that becomes even more evident when you realize that Paul is actually quoting Isaiah over and over again here. There are these echoes. You can hear Isaiah being mentioned or the, the words of Isaiah in the background. Since the beginning, empty himself, he poured out his life, the servant, the form of a servant, his form, and so on. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him. That's the language of Isaiah. Behold my servant. He will be highly exalted. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here he is getting that from Isaiah. Isaiah 45. Starting verse 21. And there is no other God beside me. That's the Lord Yahweh saying. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Isn't that amazing that Paul is applying this passage to Jesus? And he doesn't need to explain how. Jesus is God and you have God the Father. He's just, that's how it is. He's applying that to Jesus. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. In the Lord all the offspring, all the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall what? Glory to the glory of God the Father. Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold my servant, he shall be highly exalted, be lifted up. So Paul is just declaring here, just declaring, that all the expectations that Isaiah had of the coming of God's kingdom is now fulfilled with the crucified Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that's why he says it's scandalous scandal, especially for the Jews. Are you telling me that the kingdom of David, the long-expected kingdom of David, is now inaugurated, fulfilled with this crucified Jesus? And Paul says, yes, that's exactly right. So that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Submission, worship, manifested through actions and words. You have actions, the knee, bowing. You have words, the tongue, confessing. That's a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God advancing. Usually we come to this passage and what are we thinking? Are we thinking about this passage in the present or in the future? future, right? Most of us, when you read this passage, and every knee shall profess, confess that Jesus is Lord, and every knee shall bow, we are always thinking about what? One day in the future. Actually, the verb to bow is in the past, implies a continuation, and that's what we have. We've got to stop think that's only future. It's already happening. Since the ascension of Christ, since His death, resurrection, people are bowing, getting on their knees and declaring what? You are Lord. And let me show you someone very important. Now, remember the church is suffering, persecution... And what's happening with the kingdom? Is the kingdom shrinking or expanding? Expanding. And the kingdom is about to have one of its best subjects, Paul. So don't ever think that just because persecution comes, that the kingdom will stop growing. No. No, 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 no. The Lord uses persecution to expand His kingdom. Look at Acts chapter 9. That's a beautiful passage. Here is the illustration of this, what Paul is saying. Now, as Saul went on his way, remember, what is on his way to do what? Persecute the church. He approached Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And what, what happened to Saul here? Falling. To the ground, a picture of falling on his knees. 
he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see how he cannot separate the church from the Lord? Saul is persecuting the church and the Lord comes and says, well, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? What? Lord. Knee bowing, tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. You don't need to wait. It's already happening. And I hope that it happened to you. That there was a time in your life when you fell on your knees and you declared, Lord, You are my Lord. I belong to You. As the Lord had declared through Isaiah, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance, now fulfilled in Christ, we see taking place since the exaltation of Jesus. Christ humbled Himself, and He looked not for His own interest, in order that we may bow our knees and confess Him as Lord for the glory of God. That's very important, brothers and sisters. There is a present aspect of what's taking place right now. This exaltation, you think about the humiliation, exaltation, in order that the kingdom might expand. More people being brought into the kingdom. And it's taking place right now. The psalmist says, here's one of the greatest calls to worship. Psalm 95, 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And that's what we are supposed to do, brothers and sisters. We come and we bow down before Him and we use our tongues to confess that He is Lord through our songs, the singing. As we humble ourselves before the Word of God, as we let the foolishness of the cross, which is the gospel, be the center of our worship, our prayer is that unbelievers would come, and using the words of Paul in, into his letter to the first Corinthians, that the unbelievers would fall on their knees and say, God is here in this place. Only when the Lord Jesus is super exalted in our worship gathering, reflecting what's taking place in heaven, only when His Lordship is manifested through the centrality of the gospel, which is His scepter, only when our songs are Christ-centered, gospel-saturated prayers. When we as a church are not looking at our own interests, but look at the interests of others. That's when knees bow and tongues confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what takes place. That's why the church must always be the place where Christ is placed in the forefront. It's an amazing thing how many people are embarrassed of the gospel in our day. So many churches embarrassed of the gospel. And no wonder you don't see people falling on their knees and declaring Jesus as Lord. That's how God used the proclamation of the gospel. And notice also the universality of this truth. Because Paul says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee should bow. It says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, there is no place in the universe, no created being, beyond the reach of the redeeming act of the servant Christ. And that's all we see. It's, very par it's a parallel with Revelation chapter 5 here. No, no. Please note that Paul doesn't say some knees will bow, some tongues will confess. No, what does he say? Every. Every. Every? Yes. Every. Believers and unbelievers, present and future. So let me try to explain that so you don't think that there is universal salvation here. And start throwing rocks at me before I finish <laughs> explaining. The followers of Christ, they have been and they will continue 
bowing their knees before Christ out of love, affection, allegiance, and confessing Christ to be the Lord. That has been happening and will continue to happen. Amen? His people will fall down and worship Him. Use their tongues to confess that Jesus is Lord. How about unbelievers? How, how are the unbelievers in this, play, in this text here? Let me tell you. Unbelievers, the moment they die, they go and they face Christ. And they get on their knees. And out of recognition, they must confess that He is Lord. And Christ sends them to hell. That's what's happening right now. If you're not in Christ and you die, you will fall on your knees and you confess Him to be Lord by walking into hell, by being sent into hell. In the future, if Jesus comes, when He comes, if you're alive, in your unbeliever, you will fall on your knees and you will profess that He's the Lord and you will go to hell. When a nation comes and conquers another nation, think about history, wars. Do you think they want to say Caesar is Lord? No. Do they have to say? Yes. Do they receive the punishment? Yes. And that's exactly the picture we have here. Some people, there is no universal salvation. There is universal recognition and acknowledgement. Like a conquered nation... Their hearts are against that. It's not like they're confessing Jesus to be Lord out of love and affection, but out of recognition. They can do nothing but recognize. So, when people tell you, stop, stop trying to impose your Jesus upon my life. I'm glad Jesus works for you. It doesn't work for me. When people try to domesticate Jesus... That's when you got to say, I'm sorry, but I love you so much that the fact that you're refusing Jesus Christ is a sign of how much you need Him. When people tell you to stop trying to pose your Jesus upon their lives, remind them that Jesus cannot be domesticated. You cannot deny reality. I know there are culture tries to do that. You cannot deny reality. Facts. Truth. And you lovingly, graciously remind them that they will bow and they will confess that Jesus is Lord. Willing or unwilling. Jesus cannot be sanitized, personalized. He's the Lord of all. The meek and gentle Jesus is also wrathful, righteous, and holy King. I would like us not to miss the important aspect of this passage because we often think about the future. And amen, we need to think about the future. But the reality for the present is amazing, is profound. The application of this passage right now, there are people in China, there are people in Bangladesh, Syria, Sri Lanka, Nigeria, Canada, France, North Korea, in the jungles of Brazil, Angola, Congo, Iraq, Algeria. In all these places, there are people whom Jesus bought them and they are ready they're ready to bow their knees and confess Jesus as Lord. 
But they need the gospel. Because that's the means that the king appointed. That's the scepter that he appointed. So brothers and sisters, when you read this passage here, remember this truth. There are people all over the place. And I hope you can hear the call of the Lord right here. Go! Go to Namibia. Go to Mozambique. Go to Argentina. Go to Venezuela. Because I have my subjects there. And they're ready. They're ready to bow their knees and confess me as Lord. We just sing. Let every kindred, every tribe own this terrestrial ball all over the world. To Him all majesty ascribe and crown Him. There are people all over the place. And sometimes we get so self-focused with our lives. My plans, my ways, my savings, my comfort. And we forget that the kingdom is expanding. And there are subjects all over the place. His precious sheep bought with His blood. Ready. Ready. To deny Allah. And confess Jesus as Lord. And before I finish, I think a very important aspect of this passage it's tempting to look at this passage. This is an amazing, amazing portion of Christology. But it's so tempting to come to this passage and just remove this passage out of context and just try to examine all the aspects of Christ and, and, and the person of Christ and the work of Christ and we forget the context of this passage. Paul called the Philippians to have the same mind, the same affection. One love, one mind. Paul called the Philippians to do nothing from selfish ambition and vain glory. Then Paul goes on to tell them that they are to follow the example of Jesus. We, like Christ, are to humble ourselves, to count others more significant than ourselves. Have you done that this week? Has this passage been impacting our life? Have you been confronted during the week? And, and, and ooh, I'm not counting this person more significant than myself. I'm not doing this in humility. I pray, I pray that this word would crash us, destroy us, pierce us. Paul just called the church to have this mindset. He gave the perfect pattern that we are supposed to follow. But then in verses 9 through 11, there is this drastic shift. And suddenly, God the Father takes the spotlight in doing what? He takes the spotlight, and what does He do with the spotlight? He turns to Christ. The Father now starts to exalt the Son, giving Him the name that's above every name. And what we see in the Trinity is the delight in each person to exalt one another. To place each, each person of the Trinity in a place of praise. Dennis Johnson, he writes, These two divine persons, Father and Son, who with the Holy Spirit constitute or form the one triune God, are not in competition with each other. Who have you been in competition with lately? The envy, rivalry, conceit that threaten our unity have no place at all in the interpersonal relationships within the Trinity. 
The purpose of verses 9 through 11 is to invite us to honor each other above ourselves, reflecting the mutual affection of the Father and the Son, and by implication, the Holy Spirit, and their delight to enhance each other's glory. Can you imagine if our goal was to enhance each other's ways, desires, In John 16:14, Jesus says that the Spirit will come. And what is the role of the Spirit? To glorify the Son. And the Son glorifies the Father. And the Father glorifies the Son. And you have this beautiful, beautiful community in the Trinity where there is absolutely no competition between each person. And we are called, we are commanded to reflect that in our lives, in our church life, in our family life. And yes, I know we will never be like the Trinity. There is an infinite difference between us and the Trinity. Amen? There are three persons in one being. We are a lot of beings here. <laughs> And different persons. They have three persons in one being. We are not perfect in love. We are not perfect in holiness. We are not perfect in gentleness. Amen. In kindness towards one another. Actually, because of sin. And the deformities that sin brings upon us. None of us are that sweet. <laughs> As the triune God. None of us are that gracious, lovely, pleasant to be around. Amen? And yet, do you know what the Lord says? Imitate us as a trinity. Imitate me. We have no excuse. Ephesians 5.1 Therefore, be imitators of whom? Little John across the street. Be imitators of whom? God. Be imitators of God. Ooh, the triune God. Yes. Yes. Look at Jesus' words. John chapter 17. He's about to die and ascend into heaven. And here is Jesus' prayer. I do not ask for this only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one. And what is the pattern? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Unity for kingdom purposes. Unity for kingdom purposes. Unity in the church, resembling the unity of the Trinity, so others may believe. Hmm. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. That's amazing. That's amazing. Jesus, before He dies, He's about to go to the cross, and He's praying for what? The unity in the church. When was the last time you prayed for the unity in the church? That's what he's praying for. Father, enable them to be one, just like we are one. Why? So others may see the beauty 
of unity in their diversity. That's the gospel. And fall on their knees and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The unity in the church, despite being imperfect, having its flaws, will never be perfect in unity by no means. So despite all the flaws, the humility among the church members in which causes us to stop looking at our own interests provide a unity that becomes a signpost that points the world toward our Savior and His mission. Remember what I said before? Somebody says, somebody asks you, hey, I can, you can have all the gifts. You can have the gift of healing. You can heal everyone. You can perform miracles. You can call rain from heaven. And you can humble yourself Count others more significant than yourselves. Be a slave. Which one do you think you're going to resemble God the most? We most resemble and reflect our God when we actually find ourselves humbling ourselves and placing the interests of others above our own. We are created in the image of God who is one in three. We most closely resemble the God who made us in His likeness when we rejoice to exalt each other as the Father exalted Christ. We are most like our Maker when we discover that the sweetest dimension of His grace, the mercy that confers upon us, is actually in sharing with others, humbling ourselves, placing others before us. Well, people are supposed to look at the church and a church like that and see a unity in this church because of the humility of the members. And this unity because of humility where we are placing others' interests above our own reflect the God who is sovereign over all. A generous God a God who loves to reward, a God who loves to serve and save. And as we humble ourselves, as we adopt the mindset of Christ, as we start counting others more significant than ourselves, as we stop doing things out of selfishness, me, 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 my ways, my desire, my likes, as we stop doing that, as we stop living like that, do you know what happens? What does the Lord promise you to do with the humble? I will exalt the humble. And how does He exalt us? By making us more and more like Christ. There is no better exaltation for us than to be conformed more and more like Christ. Amen? That's why we were saved. Romans chapter 8. To be conformed into the likeness of Christ. So the more we humble ourselves, the more we say, not my will, Lord, your will. The more we count others more significant than ourselves. The more the Lord exalts us and makes us more like our beloved Savior. Is there any better reward than that? <laughs> Become more and more like Christ? So that's what Paul is doing here, verses 9 through 11. He's reminding and teaching the Philippians that's part of God's nature to reward a church that's dressed, clothed with humility by exalting them, lifting them up to make them more and more like Lord, we, we confess our sins, we confess our pride, we confess our selfishness, we confess our self-centeredness, 
And Lord, we know, we know that You are faithful and righteous to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Lord, we ask You to come right now and help us. Help us to confess our sins. Help us to delight ourselves in You. Help us to delight ourselves in the Trinity. Lord, this text is so beautiful, so powerful, so confronting, so humbling. Work in us, Lord. Thank You. Thank You for conquering our hearts. Like we saw Thank You for dropping us on our knees. Changing our tongue so we could confess Jesus is Lord for the glory of God the Father. Help us. Help us to continue bowing before You, O Lord, every day, every day. Praising You. Help us to remember this truth. There are people everywhere, Lord, whom You have bought and they're ready to renounce their idols, fall on their knees and confess You as Lord. And there are those who have been playing with You. There are those who have been messing around with the Gospel for years. Remind them of Your Lordship, Lord. So we beg Your grace, we beg Your mercy. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.